it seems like Coetzee wants us, it, it still wants to write a morally serious novel in some way. Morally serious in the sense that he thinks that evil is something that is supposed to be taken. I keep using that word because it's one thing that really stuck out in my reading. But despite all of this postmodern trickery, evil still needs to be thought about, even if it's immensely difficult to do so. And that we ought not deflect away from thinking about very morally serious topics. Hey everyone, you're listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a podcast in which philosophers, theologians, and literary critics discuss how literature can help us think more deeply about love, happiness, and meaning in human life. As always, I'm your host, Jennifer Frey. I'm a philosopher at the University of South Carolina, and I'm also a fellow at the Institute for Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America. As always, I'd like to thank my sponsors for their support of this podcast. First and foremost, the Institute for Human Ecology, who underwrites this podcast. The IHE is an academic institute committed to research into the conditions vital for human flourishing. To learn more about the IHE and all the events and programs they put out, you can go to their website, ihe.catholic.edu. And I'd also like to thank The Lamp and The Point magazines for underwriting my Patreon page. You can go to patreon.com slash to sign up to be a monthly patron. As a $10 monthly patron, for example, you can get a free digital subscription to either The Lamp or The Point magazines. The Lamp is a bi-monthly lay-edited journal of Catholic letters. If you'd like to see some of their content, please go to thelampmagazine.com. And The Point is a magazine of philosophical writing. You can check out the fall issue at thepointmag.com. I'm very pleased to get to episode 57 of the podcast, in which I speak with Sam Philby, who's a graduate student in philosophy at Northwestern, about J.M. Coetzee's novel, Elizabeth Costello. It's a really fun and a really meta exchange. And as always, I hope you enjoy our conversation. Okay, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Sacred and Profane Love. I am excited and also kind of daunted about today's episode because normally I like have a line on what I'm going to say. And today I don't really have a line. I just have a lot of questions And I'm excited to ask these questions to Sam Philby, who's my guest. Sam is a graduate student at Northwestern working on... Actually, Sam, what do you work on? I don't even know. I would vaguely say it's on ethics. Okay, good. That's a good topic. That territory, yes. Yeah, Yeah. okay, excellent. So anyway, Sam, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm very excited to also ask questions that I have to you about this book. Yeah, so let's just try to figure it out because I don't I don't even know that I've mentioned the book yet, but it's J.M. Co- is it Coetzee? I should have, we should have figured that out before we So one this. thing that's frustrating, I believe it's Coetzee, but there are also like introductions to his talks and people say Coetzee. And so there's variation between the two, but I, I'm pretty sure it is Coetzee. Okay, well, let's just go with Coetzee. Yeah. You know? It's like some people say Augustine and I'm like, what? Anyway, let's just say Coetzee. Yeah, so it's J.M. Coetzee's Elizabeth Costello, which is a very extraordinary novel in many senses, but the most obvious of which is that chapters three and four of this novel began as Tanner lectures at Princeton. The Tanner lectures are at Princeton, is that right? Or are they at Harvard? 
they're at a range of different places. I think there's something like seven, eight, or nine schools that actually do the Tanner lectures. But these oh, ones really? were given at Princeton. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. I did not realize that. Somehow I thought they were. Anyway, they were given as Tanner lectures. Yeah. And and I'm I'm assuming. I mean, please correct me if I'm wrong. But so he so Coetzee gives these Tanner lectures. But of course, unlike any other Tanner lecture. They are fiction. He just read like fiction yes, as his exactly. Tanner lecture. Right. And of course, the fiction is about a woman giving lectures very much like the Tanner lectures. Right, right. So it's very meta. Yes. It's very clever. And of course, it's very interesting, especially to me, who's interested at the, you know, exploring the intersection between philosophy and literature. But then he takes these lectures and he turns them into an actual novel. Yeah, yeah. And so I don't know what the best approach is here. Do we talk about the lectures first? Do we talk about the novel first and then just acknowledge like now we're at the part where it's just the lectures? Because there is a difference. Because the lectures have like all Tanner lectures responses from other academics, and that's not in the novel. Right. So how do you want to take this? We could talk about the novel. We don't necessarily need to talk about the chapters in order, right? So actually several of the chapters throughout Elizabeth Costello, not just three and four, which are the Tanner lectures, but the first chapter was published independently. Um, the chapter that is titled The Problem of Evil, I think it's the sixth chapter, was also given as a talk in 2002, like right before the novel was shipped off. So I it might see. Yeah, I yeah. Um, so when so its novel form is its final form, though. Yeah, exactly. So each chapter is called an, a lesson. So Elizabeth Costello, it's like a novel in eight lessons or something. And basically each chapter in some way or another involves an academic talk. Um, but then there's also an epilogue that's a bit different. Um, yes. Yeah, so it's a very the... strange novel for that reason. And it kind of has two degrees of reception. One is the reception of the Tanner Lectures, which is The Lives of Animals, which perhaps most famously Peter Singer is one of the respondents to it. Mm-hmm. And Singer's response isn't particularly compelling. And mm-hmm. because it's not very compelling, other philosophers have responded then to both Singer and to Coetzee. So I think mm-hmm. very notably, Cora Diamond and Stanley Cavell have responses. Um, Stephen Mulhall has written a book about this. So it's kind of started this small... I don't know, little industry of people who are interested in philosophy and religion or philosophy and literature mm-hmm. uh, discussing Coetzee. I think that's kind of fascinating. Yeah. So how did you get onto this? Like, are you just a Coetzee fan? Or... So when I talk about this book with friends, I, I don't know if it's a good novel. That's something I often say, but I find it perpetually puzzling. And because it's so puzzling, I love talking to people about it. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, I, I think it, it is, is extraordinarily fascinating. And so, you know, as I was saying to different friends, I'm going to chat um, on Sacred and Profane Love about Elizabeth Costello. They went and read it and we were all just kind of puzzled by it. So yeah. there's this I'm second... puzzled. I'm also puzzled. OK, well, maybe and I'm also and I'm also puzzled. not sure. I'm not sure if it's a good novel. I enjoyed it. Yeah. yeah. But I, I just... But I'm not sure if, like, this is just bringing too much me to the... Like, I basically hate Elizabeth Costello. <laughs> oh, tell, tell me why. Tell me why. This is great. This is great. <laughs> so it's like, I don't know how to... 
I just find her so irritating. Yeah, I feel like yeah. I would get along great with her sister. Yeah, okay, that's great. But but she's I've I just find her extremely I've you know, it's like I'm triggered all the time reading this. You know, she just makes these claims and yeah, Quay philosopher, I just you know, it's like my blood pressure just goes through the roof and I'm like what are, what are you I'm like you're contradicting yourself what are you right, saying right. like this doesn't make any like you don't understand Aquinas okay okay this is great <laughs> well maybe maybe let's talk about the lectures if you're frustrated at the claims themselves so let's go back though just okay. like three steps before we do that I mean actually we should just talk about J.M. Coetzee because okay because I will just confess I don't know if it's a failure or not, but I actually had never read any Coetzee. Oh, interesting. So, yeah. So I don't know. I just am finite. I, ne I never got around to it. And so this was the first Coetzee that I read. And so I was wondering, like, are they all like this? <laughs> Is this like a very strange Coetzee novel? Like, I have no idea. So can you just tell us more about Coetzee generally? Yeah, so Coetzee is born in South Africa in the 1940s, and he stays there until the early 1960s. So a lot of his childhood and early adult life is spent in apartheid South Africa. So many of his major works, including The Life of Times and Michael Kay, Age of Iron, and what is perhaps his most famous novel, Disgrace, are all shaped in a really significant way by the apartheid. And they're all extraordinarily different from the kind of novel that Elizabeth Costello is, both formally and I think uh, thematically. So then at the end of the, or the beginning of the 1960s, he goes to the University of Cape Town. He graduates with degrees in mathematics and English. He moves to England for a few years and basically works as a programmer until he gets a Fulbright and he moves to the US to the University of Texas in Austin and he writes a dissertation on, I think like the English prose of Samuel Beckett. I know it's on Beckett. And he teaches in the U.S. for a number of years, and he tries to get permanent residency. But he fails, and it seems like the reason he failed was because he was in a number of protests against the Vietnam War and was arrested at some of these protests, and so his application failed. So he then moves back to uh, Cape Town, and he teaches at the University of Cape Town for a number of years. And this is when he writes a good deal of his famous novels. Um, the last of which he writes before he retires at the university is, I think, Elizabeth Costello. And then several days after Elizabeth Costello is published, he both retires at the University of Cape Town, retires from the Committee of Social Thought, which he was also teaching at part-time at UChicago, and wins the Nobel Prize in Literature. So 2003 was a, a big year for him. Uh, mm -hmm. And after that, he moves to Australia. And he still lives to, uh, in Australia. He will write a novel that will come out every three years or so, but he's very reclusive. He doesn't do interviews. He rarely makes public appearances. So a very enigmatic character. That's so interesting. I wonder, I mean, because one of the questions that I have and that I'm sure so many readers have is how much Elizabeth Costello and her views are supposed to reflect his views. Yeah. And that's an especially dramatic question in this case, given... Again, it's it's original form, not as a novel, but as a bit of fiction, which are these Tanner lectures. Because obviously, like, the whole idea of the Tanner lecture is that you go and you say something that you yourself think. 
about yeah. something having to do with value. And he doesn't do that, right? So, I mean, yeah. So, I guess, like, this is just a historical question, but, like, why was he invited to give the Tanner lectures? Because, again, he's a novelist, right? I mean, what what was the... What was the thought there? So there's actually very little detail because it was entirely unprecedented that he was asked to give these lectures. In a large part, it was because a lot of his novels had a certain kind of moral force to them, for lack of a better term. So when he wrote The Life of Times of Michael Kay, he was really dealing with substantial ethical issues occurring in South Africa, um, particularly with the apartheid. And then again, uh, or just before that, with Waiting from the Barbarians, there was heavy ethical issues about colonization throughout, and then he returns to the theme of apartheid in Age of Iron. So it seems like they viewed him as this very morally serious novelist. And because of that, he was taken up or asked to do the Tanner Lectures, and they thought that he would speak to some theme in a relatively traditional sense, but of course he then does these short stories. But we actually know very little about what Coetzea himself thinks about these matters. He has one straight nonfiction essay that is vaguely about animals, where he suggests that he thinks that arguments are not very effective in convincing people to, say, become vegetarian, and that it will have to come with like an encounter with animals themselves, or an encounter with animals through art or something like that. But beyond that, it's very unclear what the similarities are. Now, so, is, so is, I'm sorry to interrupt. So is yeah. he a vegetarian? I believe he's a vegetarian. But I Are don't you a vegetarian? He, no, I'm not a vegetarian. Okay, me either. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but what I find interesting is, I mean, one thing about the, the lectures, and we can talk about them in detail. So it's two chapters. The first is her just giving a straight lecture. And the lecture is basically her saying, I don't want to use reason to think about animals. I don't want to use reason. I don't think any of the philosophical arguments in favor of animals are very good. This is the wrong kind of approach. And so one thing that you might think is, well, she's just not offering very good arguments. These arguments are kind of floating in the abstract. We can easily critique them and pick them apart. But I think Kutzia is doing a bit more than that, right? He has a certain distance from the arguments, and he's trying to think through or at least trying to present also, the power dynamics that are in play in these dynamics, right? The, the arguments are embedded in a particular family kind of dispute where at the lectures is both Elizabeth's son, John, and Elizabeth's daughter-in-law, Norma. And one of their kind of big family disputes, Norma is a, a philosopher of mind, is that she thinks that Elizabeth Costello is just basically doing a power play over her family and trying to get her Elizabeth's grandkids, Norma's kids, to not eat meat, that this is effectively kind of a propaganda machine. So even relatively quickly, we see that maybe the arguments are not meant to be taken totally abstracted from the lives in which they're embedded. Yeah, I mean, again, it's interesting because I read the novel first. I didn't mm -hmm. read the Tanner lectures first. So I'm going into the third chapter or the third lesson, yeah. however you want to think about it, already knowing more about this character, yeah, right? Yeah. And knowing more about her relationship with her son. 
Although, actually, this is something that I was confused about, so maybe you can um, help clarify. So, lesson one on realism. Yeah. She is at, what, Altona College? Yeah, yeah. Giving interviews and... And her and her son is is there just basically, I don't know. He's he's just kind of acting like her caretaker, making sure that she gets where she needs to go and <clears throat> etc. Because she's quite old. Yeah, it, that's that's the same son as as in the um as in as the third chapter, to. right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because she has two kids, right? Yes, and one of them is the family member that we know of uh, her her daughter does not make an appearance in the novel. Okay. That's what I was confused about then. So, I mean, one of the fascinating things about the novel, at least to me, and maybe we can get into some of the details that we both think about this is that all of the lectures or conversations that take place are ones in which someone significant in some way in Elizabeth Costello's life is the interlocutor or is the person observing and it's typically a different person from chapter to chapter. And maybe what we think about Elizabeth Costello and maybe even her own stances change from chapter to chapter. So, I mean, an example of one of those differences is one of the chapters I, I was particularly keen to talk to you about uh, is chapter six, which is called The Problem of Evil. And in that chapter, she's effectively giving a talk on why she thinks this, this fictional novelist, Paul West, he, in the novel, writes about the execution scenes of people who had plotted to, to kill Hitler in this like mm -hmm. really gruesome detail. Mm -hmm. And Costello's response is kind of to say, one of the problems with literature generally is that it can make us encounter this sort of vicious evil, and we should not encounter it. But that's something that should kind of be bracketed off. But of course, in chapter one, that's exactly how... John, her son, talks about her fiction. She calls it, or he calls it cruel, indecent, and Costello uses the same kind of language to talk about Paul's novel. So when we have all of the chapters in view, there's kind of this like strange undermining that happens where the kinds of claims that Costello or that um, uh, Kutsia is making against other people are then made against her. Or similarly, when she's talking to her sister Blanche, Blanche says, I don't need to encounter literature to know what's evil. I know the depths of depravity. I don't need to engage with it. Um, whereas it seems like that then, or in that, that conversation with Blanche, Costello is then defending literature's capacity to show us evil, to teach us these kind of evil, dark secrets about ourselves. So it's both that her views fluctuate and then who she's interacting with seems to bring out different aspects of what she thinks. Yeah, so, okay, so that's really good because one, I, I feel sort of sorry for our listeners right now because we haven't, um, we haven't really gone through the structure of the novel, but, but maybe I'll just say this thought before I lose it, and that is that, you know, the final lesson, things take a distinctively Kafka-esque turn. Yeah. It's frankly bizarre to characterize this final chapter as a lesson. Right. It feels more like you're in a, a, a Kafka short story where you're like, yeah. is this real? What, you know, because basically like 
she has to appear before this panel of judges and she's like defending her life or defending herself and she's being kept out of somewhere but it's like where is it heaven is it purgatory like what's happening we have no idea um and and she's like trying to defend defend herself as a writer she's she's supposed to say what she really believes in and she can't do it and she also seems to events little to no self-knowledge like in the end you know yeah, like, yeah. and she tries to sort of make it a feature and not a bug right that she right, doesn't right. have any self-knowledge but like of course it does seem like a like a failure it's <laughs> some significant extent that she can't really come up with anything in defense of herself and and of her and of her vocation as a writer. And so so yeah, I think she is someone who doesn't really have a whole lot of self-knowledge, frankly. Yeah, yeah. I think that is related to the fact that she doesn't have good relationships with people. No. As near no. as I can tell. I mean, yeah. she ha- she she goes on and on and on in her actual lectures about writing and imaginative sympathy. I mean, she has a she she has like frankly a weird amount of imaginative sympathy for animals. Like she's like, "Oh, you can imagine yourself as an oyster." And I'm like, "Really?" Right. It sounds very boring. But yeah. okay. But then she has so little imaginative sympathy for nearly any human being she encounters, as far as I can tell, including, of course, most strikingly, her own children. Yeah. And I mean, this is one of the reasons that we might want to pause and think that the arguments that she's offering are Coetzee's point or something like that. Because it just seems very clear that while she can imaginatively enter into, I mean, she brags about the fact that she can enter into the mind of Molly Bloom in Ulysses. Mm-hmm. Within the novel Elizabeth Costello, Costello's own famous work is called, uh, it's on Eccles Street or something like that. And it's Ulysses from the perspective of Molly Bloom. So she right. talks about being able to enter into the perspective of animals, into the perspectives of imaginary beings. But in one of kind of the heartbreaking parts are really sad parts at the end of chapter four. It seems like she's totally unable to enter into or see from anyone else's perspective who's actually a participant in her life mm-hmm. in some way or someone she can actually engage with. Yeah. Similarly, in chapter one, when her son John is speaking about her, John speaks about her in such a way that it just seems like she's a terrible mother. That she Oh, she was only- clearly a terrible yeah. mother. <laughs> And all she is thinking about is writing novels in which she is imaginatively entering into the perspectives of people who don't exist yeah. at the expense of all of the people in her life to put them and present them in this kind of cruel light in her novels. Right. That's at least what we gather from John's perspective. Yeah, I mean, okay, I I, I want to really briefly say something about Lesson 6, but then I think we should kind of go through just how the novel proceeds. Unfolds, then, yeah. Then yeah. we can kind of do a deep dive. But but just before I lose the thought, when it when it comes to chapter six and and the problem of evil as he presents it, I mean to me it's another 
iteration of a theme that you find in almost all great works of literature, which is sort of like, you know, the dangers of reading. And that can take different forms. I think what's interesting about the case of Elizabeth Costello is that it's also in a way about the dangers of writing. Yes. You know, the dangers of writing fiction and what it can do to us. But that's that's a danger that she seems to have less insight about than than the so-called dangers of reading, you know, right. where it's like, well, if I'm reading, you know, these stories about evil in which they seem beautiful, what is that doing to yeah. my imagination? I was just talking to Dana Joya about this in my last, I just did an episode on Baudelaire and this was kind of the oh, topic. Wonderful. like, yeah. you know, cause, cause Baudelaire makes evil seductive and beautiful and, you know, you're kind of, you're kind I don't know, you're oddly attracted towards it in his yeah, poetry. Yeah. And so there's a question of like, well, is that good? I mean, <laughs> should right. we, and that, and that kind of goes back to, I don't know. I mean, it goes back to Plato and like his beef with the poets and, the fact that poets are sacrificing truth and, you know, our relationship to reality for beauty, right? Yeah. Or for, or, or, you know, for emotion, like, right, 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 for feeling good and, and this, this kind of pleasure that can, from Plato's perspective, lead us astray. So anyway, so those are all of like the huge themes that yeah, I think yeah. this this novel is grappling with. I mean, this novel is obviously a philosophical novel right, right. <laughs> on every level, and it's grappling with all of this. But I think, okay, so just for the sake of our listeners, let's like yeah. go through the lessons. So the first lesson I think is very important this is the chapter on realism. And yeah, this is yeah. where it begins with a very explicit invocation of Kafka, right? Yeah. And his story, his very weird story. Well, I guess all Kafka's stories are weird, but this one's really weird. A report to an academy. Yeah. About a chimpanzee named Red Peter. Let's talk it let's talk about the Kafka story first, just to set okay. it up. Yeah. So So in the Kafka story, I mean there are some ambiguities in the text, but you as the reader are experiencing someone speaking to you. You are presumably in the position of a member of this academy, and you are being told about a monkey or an ape that seems to have through a, a range of different kinds of training be able to talk to human beings, has learned a language, is able to engage and partake in human life. This will eventually kind of become significant because this is the way in which Elizabeth Costello describes herself or kind of seems to identify with throughout the novel as someone who is not fully attuned maybe to her nature, is having to cover herself up for other people as a certain kind of entertainment perhaps. And so there's this certain setup of alienation very early on in the book because of that. And then also this thought of 
can we enter into the mind of the ape? But that will come in later on. Right. Yeah. So it's a question. I mean, the Kafka story, it's like, you know, like a lot of his stories, it's unclear how how literal we're supposed to take it. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or if it's just one big metaphor for Kafka's alienated experience. Right. Right. But, but yeah, um, but, I, but I do think that it's a, it's a very important kind of like framing to this whole thing. Yeah. And I think that a good way of putting how I feel about the character of Elizabeth Costello is that she is very alienated from her humanity. Yeah. She is alienated from other human beings, right? Yeah. And yet, she's a fiction writer. Right. And you might have thought, and in fact, I would argue that the fiction writer, if they are any good, is going to have to have a pretty deep insight into the human, right? Yes. So it raises this question of, whether or not she does. Yeah. And also even, I don't know, an even deeper question, which is whether or not she could if she were so alienated. Yeah. So that's just, so I think it's like a very clever way of setting it up. And so one of the things is that is puzzling about this novel and that I like it. So I gave a very thin description of what happens in the report to the Academy because it opens up multiple strings we can follow along that continue throughout the book, and which string you follow will kind of reveal different things or offer a different way of understanding the story. So one way that Kafka has sometimes been said to speak about Report to the Academy is that it's a metaphor for anti-Semitism, effectively, and how he felt as a Jew in an anti-Semitic public. And of course, one of the other themes throughout the novel is questions about the Holocaust and you know, in chapter six, like we were talking about, this is one of the big themes or disputes that she has with Paul West's novel, that it represents certain things in the Holocaust that ought not to be represented. But then in chapters three and four, when she's talking about uh, animals, she makes this, you know, clearly offensive to a lot of people comparison between the slaughter of animals and the Holocaust. And so it's like, with the story the kafka story in place there's like that string that you can follow then there's the string of alienation that you were talking about then there's about the, the capacity to imaginatively enter into other minds kind of thing so that each little bit of costello's uh, or of Coetzee's novel offers these different strings that we can follow and you kind of get different things depending on what string you choose to follow and i think for that reason the novel can be really puzzling and very difficult because of that and as you start to follow a string another one will come along. And so you can choose to stay on the string that you're following or go a different way. And so despite the fact that the novel is very readable, like it, it's, it's easy reading in the sense of it's not particularly difficult prose. It's not doing any obvious like postmodern trickery. Uh, oh, a little bit mm -hmm. in the beginning. It is. A little, but it's a little bit Pomo maybe. trickery in the beginning. Okay. Come yeah, on. no, that's there. there. No, there is, there is, but it's not maybe as a uh, dense or you're not, you know, pulling your hair out the way that I first felt reading like, I don't know, 
Gravity's Rainbow or even David Fox. I hate Fox's that Wild. book. Just oh, you do? Okay. I do. I know. It's probably a failure, but I'm sorry. Can't stand it. I can't remember my life. But that's just to say, one of the tricky things is the strings to follow. But one thing that you were pointing out was this alienation that mm-hmm. she felt. And I mm-hmm. think that ends up being one of the great themes of the novel, or at least one mm-hmm. of the substantial strings. So one way to understand the lectures, and this is how they were received by people like Peter Singer and some of the other respondents, the lectures being the Tanner lectures, is that the main dispute is not just about how to think about animals, but between philosophy and literature. So on the one hand, there are arguments that we can offer about our relationship to animals. And on the other hand, we've basically got what literature can offer us, literature offering us a way of seeing the lives of animals from the inside, as it were, or increasing our sympathy towards them. And in increasing our sympathy, that will be what causes us to convert to the side of vegetarianism. Not any philosophical. Yeah, okay. So, okay, let's just pick up that thread, right? That the, the idea that literature is about revealing some truth, but in the mode of literature, right? Like it's not going to, insofar as it is truth revealing, it's not going to be in the same mode as, you know, philosophy. Yeah. And, and this is good, but, and, and actually I, that's probably my view, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, My view is somewhere in that conceptual space. But if you, if you had hoped if Coetzee had hoped that this novel was going to make us see that we shouldn't eat animals in a way that philosophy couldn't, I think it must be an absolute total failure. I, I think that's exactly right. And I think that's something, I mean, I, I presume that you and I are maybe in a similar position of thinking both philosophy and literature, at least in different times, are at the business of getting to the truth. Not the Costello position of philosophy just seems useless. Right. And oh, yeah. No, I, I'm a, I'm a partisan of philosophy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Me, me as well. Me as well. So then, if this is so inconvinc- unconvincing, and it seems kind of clearly unconvincing, what exactly is Coetzee doing? I know. Yeah, I know. And right. I don't have an answer to that question because so, you would think, like, what, what is literature? What is great literature really good at? It gets down into the particulars, yeah. right? Philosophy, okay, we're worried about abstract concepts and first principles and what we can derive from them, et cetera. Literature is just looking at a very particular time and place, a particular yeah. story, and you get inside of particular characters and you see yeah. like sort of how the drama of things unfolds through them. That's like not what's happening in this novel. This novel mm-hmm. is like a series of lessons or whatever, but somehow fictionalized or novelized. Yeah. And it's incredibly abstracted. Right? right. So we're not we're not taken into the you know, forest primeval where we you know, see in some intimate or compelling way like you know, the forest creatures or whatever. And we're certainly not taken into, you know, the African savanna where we see the actual reality of animals, which is that, you know, as as Werner Herzog would say, nature is murder. 
Yeah. Can you we get we, voice for the listeners? Yeah, I wish I could do it. I, I'm not even going to try, but just just Google Herzog, nature is murder, and you will get a wonderful treat. But look, I mean, it's this incredibly abstracted, sentimentalized account of animals. Yeah. In which we should be kind to them. And it's right. like, I would like you to be, I would like to see you be kind to the grizzly bear. And why don't you yeah. report back to us and let us know how that went? Yeah. I mean, or the wolf, or like nature is actually red tooth and claw, but but she but my but my point is she's not looking at it. She's not looking at it at all. Yeah, and, and this is I mean, this is kind of internal to the text, right? So she's often accused of basically not spending any time with animals. And as far as we know, so um, the, the, the two lives of animals chapters, chapter three is her just giving that straight lecture. And then in the next chapter, she partakes kind of in this question and answer about uh, Arilka and a Ted Hughes poem in the literature department. And then she has a debate with a philosopher. Mm-hmm. And one of the questions the philosopher asks her is like, look, if you want to spend time with animal lovers, it seems like the, the two options are people who really purport to love animals, but spend very little time with them or people who effectively hunt animals and really love them. So which one are, are you? Mm-hmm. Like a seller kind of thing. And these to me suggest less that we should take Costello's views themselves seriously, but instead do what she suggests and try to imaginally inhabit the world as she sees it. And we get this glimmer at the end where she talks with her son about why she cares so much about talking about animals. And it seems like it's just trying to express her sense that she sees something totally evil in the world, namely the slaughter of all of these animals just for our food. And it seems like it's not registering with anyone else. And she feels this deep sense of alienation by being struck at the fact that there is nothing more normal than the mass killing of animals, and yet nothing to her that is more atrocious than this. And these in conjunction are really alienating for her. And she's trying to express that alienation, it seems. So Cora Diamond's way of putting this is it's um, what she calls the difficulty of reality. When it seems like two things that can't be true at the same time are true. And what strikes us as difficult about reality was going to vary from person to person, right? Like, Costello's problems might not bother us at all if we're not vegetarians or something like that. But we might be bothered by all sorts of other things. So another example might be something like Abraham and Isaac, right? Kierkegaard seems to have this approach to that story in the Bible that, like, if you're a Christian, you might be totally perplexed about how this person was going to murder their child and yet is the father of some great faiths. There's something boggling about that. If you're not a religious person, you might think, well, this guy was just a murderer, right? Or going to be a murderer or something like that. And so I think the text is sort of asking us, or at least one way of reading the text, is it asking us to enter into what it's like to have a particular kind of encounter with evil. And I think encounters with evil ends up being a string of thoughts throughout that text. Um, And I think the end of chapter four kind of dovetails both the encounter of evil and then how alienating certain encounters with evil can be. 
if you think you're seeing something that no one else does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, for one thing, of course, she's not the only person that sees this. There are plenty right, of, right. you know, plenty of animal liberation types out there. But I, but I think, like, again, for me, that the, just the deepest puzzle is you might think, okay, what can the fiction writers show us yeah. that is going to make us see animals in a different way? Yeah. And it might be like a cold, hard look at the slaughterhouse and what happens right. to people who work in those environments and what happens to the animals in those environments or something, yeah. you know, like Upton Sinclair or something like that, right? Yeah. Or yeah. you again, you might think, okay, well, a clear-eyed look at nature. Notably, she doesn't do that. And I think if she did, she wouldn't actually get the results that she wanted. I mean, right, I right. actually you know, have spent a decent amount of time around animals. Yeah. And I've had chickens for the past two years. Mm -hmm. And I actually feel better about eating chickens now that I've lived with mm -hmm. them for two years because, one, I've seen what happens to chickens if they're not right. completely looked after by me. Their heads are ripped off. Yeah, raccoons yeah. and eaten while still alive so you know it's not pretty yeah and i keep them in this like really nice coop and you know like like i take care of them but they're also just so incredibly stupid it's it really was shocking to me how <laughs> stupid chickens are i'm not going to go into all sorts of details but you just have to trust me on this i, I, I will trust you yeah and so it's like, you know, this idea, I mean, one of the um, Tanner lecture responses, I can't remember, there were four of them, and I'm sorry because I can't remember their names, um, but I will post these in okay. the show notes for people. Did you, did, you, did you read the Tanner lecture responses? Yeah, I have, yeah. Okay, so it was the woman who was talking about our relationships with animals and like how, you know, she's friends with her dog. Oh, right. You know right. what I'm talking about, right? Yes, yeah. And of course, yeah. as an Aristotelian, I'm like, of course you're not friends with your dog. Are you sharing right. hearts and minds with your dog? Of course you're not. But like your dog can't tell you what's on its mind and therefore actually doesn't have thoughts because as I can tell, thoughts and language are a package deal. But at any rate, it's like this, you know, she's talking about having a pet, which is great. I Humans have been having pets for a long time. Mm. But again, it's this incredibly sentimentalized, like, picture of the relationship between man and other animals. And it sort of, like, skips over the part that, like, well, we did breed this for, right, right, for millennia, right? Right? Yeah. right? Like literally for our purposes. Yeah. Bred these animals. These are not wild animals. These are creatures that we have domesticated for our purposes, at which, of course, invites the question, what are you going to do with the cows when you liberate them? Yeah, yeah. Well, so there's, 
there's a lot of questions there, and I want to kind of pick two of them and then focus on one. So the first is, you might just question what work kind of imaginative sympathy and literature could do for shaping our moral views. And if we wanted to talk about that, you know, we could talk about yeah. Core Diamond and Martha Nussbaum and all of these people um, where you might think, yeah, we could become more sympathetic, but we could also fail to become sympathetic or something like that. But let's go back to the cold, hard look you were talking about, right? Yeah. So literature might give us a cold, hard look at the, the slaughterhouses or something like that. There's a question in the novel of that's, if that's actually what Elizabeth Costello would want, because Costello seems to both be saying that's what literature should be doing in a certain sense, right? We need to look at the evil that's done to animals. But then in chapter six is like, no, we should not encounter these evils. And so it almost seems like one of the paradoxes of literature for Costello is the thought that... I don't know how to put it in a better way, but if the novel attempts to capture the ethically grotesque in some desire to expose it to us or show it to us, it seems like it, it somehow contributes to the survival of that evil, right? Mm -hmm. That we are then touched and encountering evil in a way that Elizabeth Costello thinks that we shouldn't, but she also mm -hmm. thinks we should. And so there's kind of this paradox there. Well, yeah, I mean, I think it goes back to what I was saying earlier, that she... It's it's like the novel doesn't manage to present us with a consistent self, right? That that has consistent thoughts and a consistent point of view, and that seems very intentional, right? It doesn't yeah, matter. yeah. It's not like he like failed to notice that she says P and not P like a bunch of different times, right? right. But and and so I do have a question about why that is. But then it seems related to this other thing, and this is kind of my, one of my sources of frustration with her or Coetzee or however we want to yeah. parse it, is just that this total failure to see that imagination, while good and important and critical, is in the service of reason. So like yeah. all of her arguments, you know, uh, about why we shouldn't eat animals or hurt animals. They all work by, as it were, dethroning reason right. and replacing it with imagination. She never really tells us what she thinks imagination is. Yeah. She also never really tells us what she thinks reason is. Right. And then along the way, she says all manner of, ridiculous and false things about Aquinas. And so I was like extremely yeah. triggered <laughs> yeah, yeah. reading it and had to like calm down. But um, but at any rate, I, you know, it, it's just it just seems to me that there is a, a kind a kind of moral psychology behind all of this that just seems wrong and false. Yes. And and so one of the questions I had was is this Coetzee's view or is he just like putting this incoherence on display or what's happening? So I don't think it's Coetzee's view. And I think this is, again, one of the puzzles of the book, because you'll start to notice that the more she emphasizes the imagination or literary life, the more stories fail her. Yeah. Right. So it ends up being, you know, she tries to defend literature and poetry throughout, but then she starts to shift in chapter six. So in chapter five, she has this confrontation with her, her sister, who's a nun, 
And they have kind of an argument about literature where, kind of as I was saying earlier, Costello is trying to defend literature and uh, her sister Blanche is saying, I don't need it. I know human beings are evil. I'm just going to devote myself to the poor. Mm-hmm. And then in the next chapter, it seems like Costello is taking that a little bit to heart where she's mm-hmm. thinking about um, Paul West's book. And she says, actually, I don't know how I would choose between being good or doing something morally good and writing a story. I used to commit to stories, but now I think instead of writing a story, I'd rather do good. And then at the end of the novel, she fails to be able to tell any genuine story about herself. Yeah, she can't do it. Yeah, she can't. And so I think this is also one of the overarching themes to maybe think about or consider. And it's one of the things that makes the novel so puzzling to me is that it's a story that in some way has an arc that's the failure of telling stories. It's interesting. So I, I, I really liked the chapters between Elizabeth Costello and her sister because her sister is yeah. a Catholic nun. Right, right. But, it, but of course, it's not true for a Christian to say that they don't need literature because the whole right. thing comes out of a book, actually. Yeah, yeah. And a story, actually. So there's a there's a failure of self-knowledge there as well to not see that this religion is coming out of it would be forced to say a literary tradition but like well actually maybe it's not I mean look these these stories through which the christian understands him or herself are the stories through which christ and mary and the, all the early Christians understood themselves through as well. And the whole arc of salvation is, it's a, it's a narrative, it's a story. I mean, yeah. the Bible is literature. I happen to think it's great literature. Solid third of it's poetry. So, I <laughs> yeah. mean, like, it's just, it's just wrong. I mean, if she's, if she's going to mass every day, I don't I don't remember what religious order she's in or whatever, but she's praying the Psalms. That's poetry. Yeah. So I, I don't I don't know what she's on about there. Well, I wonder if she would ultimately agree with you, because it seems like one of the big differences between Blanche and Elizabeth is Blanche is very dedicated to the religious worldview and is dismissive of secular humanist education. And one of the reasons she seems to do that is it doesn't give people the right kind of thing to identify with. She thinks that humanist education, right, is too abstract. It's too dealing with the platonic forms or whatever. Whereas, you know, one thing she says is people don't want the Greeks. What people want is the suffering Christ. And so I think there is a certain kind of narrative identification or getting into a narrative that she uh, is somewhat compelled by, though there's not a ton of textual evidence either way it at least seems like it's one kind of story, the story that she identifies with the Greeks. and Yeah, uh, I mean, but again, it's like, to me, she's this opposing extreme, which should also be rejected, yes. right? I mean, there's something like bizarrely Protestant about saying that, oh, we don't want the Greeks. It's like, well, tell that to St. Thomas, who's haunting this whole text anyway. Right, right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, like, he wanted the Greeks. Uh, and the Romans. And I mean, it just, it's like a weird false dichotomy to me. 
Yeah. And I, I'm just like, it could obviously be both. And then the best case would. And, and I also felt like Elizabeth Costello. And so in this exchange, you know, she's trading in caricatures, both caricatures of the Greeks and caricatures of Christianity. And it's like, so, you know, it's not, again, it's like these abstractions that don't right. fit the reality of the thing that they're talking about. And I often felt that way reading this novel. Yeah. And, and so to bring it around to this idea, like, is it a good novel? I mean, one way to answer it is just to say straightforwardly no, because no yeah. good novel just deals with abstractions. Yeah. That's not like, that's just not how the, the literary form operates, I think. Yeah. And, and I just felt so often in this text, I was being confronted by this abstract caricature, caricature of religion, caricature of the of Greek culture, caricature yeah. of Aquinas, you know, it's like, so I felt frustrated by that, but that, but then that raises the question, is it intentional? Yeah. And if it is intentional, like what on earth does that mean about this novel? Yeah. I think that's a really good point. I mean, so I remember when I first read this novel, it was when I was doing a master's degree and I would try to take a day off. And in the evening before my day off, I would go to a bookstore and I would buy a book 200 pages or shorter. And the next day I would just try and read the whole thing. And that's what I did my day off from philosophy. I needed to get a novel in. I was going to do it all then. And I remember... Good for you. Everyone should have such a plan. And I remember reading Elizabeth Costello and just thinking, why are all my friends talking about this book? This is a novel of ideas where all of the ideas are bad, right? It's not like the Brothers Karamazov or Magic Mountain where you might find a range of perspectives really persuasive or engaging or interesting. It's just the arguments aren't that gripping. And I yeah. think the fact that the arguments aren't that gripping is trying to point us maybe to other aspects of the text. Of course, then you might wonder, why offer these ideas at all? Right. Why, what is the function of these arguments in this, in this text? Right. Well, what is your pitch? You don't have to be totally sold on it. But what yeah. is your pitch that it is a good novel? The closest thing I get to a pitch is related to some of the themes that we were talking about, is I think in a really fascinating way, it tries to address the way different, resp different people respond to different things that they interpret as evil in one way, and the troubles that that causes. So that was one reason I was bringing up the West chapter first. On the one hand, you can think of this just as a story of someone saying, there are certain evils that we should not represent. But then on the other hand, Costello seems to be suggesting in the earlier lectures, it's literature's job to resent these evils in some way. That's what it should be driving at, these evils that are alienating to me. At the same time, she's someone who tries to represent evils that alienates her son, her son then views as evil. So throughout, there are kind of all of these different encounters in which the ideas are embedded in lives that affect all of the personal relationships throughout the novel. And so I find that very interesting, that it has to do in some way with encountering uh, evil and the way in which ideas are embedded in these lives and come out in different ways, whether that be an alienated relation between a son and a mother, 
between um, a sister and another sister, or between, you know, a grandmother and grandchildren, daughter-in-law, mother-in-law. There are all of these different dynamics at play. And the text kind of resists, at least to me, any maybe easy interpretation of it. And I find that very compelling. And I don't know what to make of any of it. It's almost like anything that I could begin to think, Costello has put something in there that tries to block off that thought, to say, no, 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 like, that's not the way you should be going. And so I find that really interesting. Yeah, I mean, look, it's obviously very thought-provoking. It's provoking a lot of thought and lively conversation, but, but surely that's not the measure of great literary art that it made you have interesting conversations. It, in my view, is, you know, whether or not it's telling us something true about ourselves or, or about yeah. the world or ourselves in relation to the world. And, and I think, like, obviously, in this novel in particular, you have a very explicit and quite clever way of thinking about the relationship between different modes of approaching the truth, whether yeah. it's through giving arguments in a lecture, the way that a philosopher would, or whether it's in writing fiction. Now, what's so clever is that he's doing both, right? But I don't know at the end of the day what we're supposed to take out of that. I guess that's what I'm struggling with is I don't have a line on it. I mean, I can tell you things I definitely think like she's a terrible thinker. Right. right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> or like, good Lord, you know, these things needed to be edited. And that, that she herself is blind to a lot of her own moral failure. She's, she's so hyper aware of what she takes to be this literal holocaust going on yeah. all around her. But she's completely blind to, you know, the log in her own eye, as it were. Yeah. And the ways in which she has really hurt the people that she was in fact responsible for loving and so and and then even just you know all this stuff about the imagination and and fiction like helping your imagination and expand your moral imagination i mean of course there's something true about that but what she fails to see is that fiction, whether it's poetry or a novel or something else, is a work of reason. Yeah. And that's why animals don't produce fiction and won't, absent some miracle. And that for the fiction writer to denigrate reason is is a kind of performative self-contradiction that I think she just doesn't see. Yeah, I wonder, let's talk maybe a little bit more about that point. 
I think she's okay with not thinking very seriously about reason because her premise is kind of, she's rejecting reason. And her initial standpoint is saying, if you wanted someone to talk to you reasonably about these things, to actually talk about the arguments, you should have asked a philosopher. Yeah, but I'm sorry, but that's insane. Tell me me more. That's totally insane for any human being to say, well, I reject reason. Yeah, and then, that, that literally, is also the then, text itself. Then, then go live in the barn. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what Norma tells John, right? In the, I think it's the fourth chapter. Well, she was exactly right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. what, you know, and it's just, it's a bit gobsmacking to me. I mean, like, it's like, what could you possibly mean by reason, right? Where yeah, yeah. you think that's not the thing you've devoted your life to, actually, in fact. Yeah. But I again, mean, I think these are the kinds of things where, like, so Singer's understanding, so Singer is one of the respondents. Singer thinks that Kutzia is just trying to get, like, an ironic distance from these views. And that's why he has, you know, Norma chime in at different points. And I don't think that that's right. I think it is supposed to be a key for us to think, Maybe we shouldn't be taking these ideas totally seriously, but there's something else going on in the text. Of course, I still end up with the difficulty that I think you end up with, and might be Coetzee's point, that there's no neat idea to be drawn from this, right? That it is, and that's why I said I find the novel quite literally puzzling, because I feel like any potential lesson I could learn from it, there's something elsewhere that contradicts it or puts intention with it, right? So she says... You know, literature allows us with the imaginative sympathy to enter into and understand things that we previously wouldn't have, and that will increase our sympathies. But at the same time, that exact same imagination puts us in direct encounter with some of the most horrible things. I mean, not direct, indirect encounter with some of the most horrible horrors. And so there's a tension within the text between the views that she offers. Mm. And so it's very hard, at least for me, to say, what, what the takeaway or what the lesson of the book is about because I just see constant tensions or contradictions throughout it. And so it's one reason that I love talking about the book and hearing other people's thoughts to see if they have an angle in or a way of resolving some of the threads, as it were. Yeah, well, I mean, you could just go full postmodern and, you know, not embrace the mystery, but embrace the embrace the um you know the inevitable reality that the contradictions won't be resolved and that there is no great lesson here and that really it's just immensely clever it's immensely clever it's immensely ironic it's immensely learned and we can just appreciate it for that but at the end of the day it's just another cultural artifact and you shouldn't you know (laughs) shouldn't be looking for anything more and one of the questions I had was whether or not, because precisely because I don't know Coetzee very well, I mean, is that possibly where he's going with this? That it's just sort of like another way of restating the postmodern, you know, idea that, yeah, I mean, there is no truth to who she was or there is no thick self, right? It all evaporates and you know, all there is is what she feels and all these attempts at making sense of any of it just kind of 
that aren't going to add up to anything. I think it's trying to bring a certain kind of moral, moral seriousness maybe to that thought, right? So on the postmodern note, one of the things that she begins with in the What is Realism chapter or the Realism chapter when talking about Red Peter is just, she says, it used to be the case that when I would just speak about something, everyone understood what I was saying. The table in my story is a table. The cat in my story is a cat. But now in a particular kind of postmodern age, those things can't be taken for granted. The novel then concludes after the eighth lesson that we were talking about, about her going to heaven, with a revised version of the letter from... Well, if it's heaven, it's not clear. It's not clear that it's heaven. Okay, okay. (laughs) Potential afterlife. It concludes with a kind of reworking of the letter of Lord Shondos, which is, you know, very, very early modernist short story letter kind of thing, Mm -hmm. which also deals with reality kind of perpetually leaving our grasp. Mm -hmm. And so I think there really clearly is that kind of postmodern element. But I don't think like someone like Pynchon or even like Gaddis or Don DeLillo, which you just end up with a certain kind of bleakness to the universe where it's like, yeah, this is all tricks and everything is bad. It seems like Coetzee wants us, it still wants to write a morally serious novel in some way. Morally serious in the sense that he thinks that Evil is something that is supposed to be taken. I keep using that word because it's one thing that really stuck out in my reading. But despite all of this postmodern trickery, evil still needs to be thought about, even if it's immensely difficult to do so. And that we ought not deflect away from thinking about very morally serious topics, even in a vaguely kind of postmodern world. In that sense, I think there are parallels to some of David Foster Wallace's work. Mm. I think Coetzee is probably tries to be a bit more tricksy in a lot of ways. Um, but I think Wallace is another writer who is trying to write this kind of quote unquote, morally serious fiction that's very informed by postmodernism. Mm-hmm. He seems to think of course that morality is, is maybe a step beyond postmodernity will bring us beyond postmodernity. We need to return to the novels of Dostoevsky or something like that. Mm-hmm. Whereas Kutsia is maybe more content to play in the postmodernism. Mm-hmm. But I think it, it's, uh, he is trying to sustain the trickiness of postmodernism with moral seriousness in some way. Mm-hmm. What maybe moral lesson we're supposed to take away, it's hard to tell. Um, and again, that's why I find this perplexing. Yeah. Well, let's go back to the literature and philosophy thing in light of the final lesson. Yeah. So, again, she's supposed to, she's in front of a panel of judges. She's supposed to be kind of defending her life of writing. Mm -hmm. Or it looks like maybe even just be defending her life. And one thing she says is, she says, it's not my profession to believe, only to write. Because they tell her, like, like, write what you believe. She's like, well, that's not what I do. I'm not a believer. I'm a writer. She says, I can't afford to believe. It's a luxury. It gets in the way. And she calls herself a secretary of the invisible, which I think is a phrase she gets from Miłosz. And she kind of poo-poos the idea that God would care about her. She says, God would not look kindly on any presumption of intimacy on my part. And yeah, I mean, this vision of writing is having nothing to do with belief. I wasn't, you could take that in so many different directions, but I wasn't really sure what, yeah, 
just asking for comment there, I guess. <laughs> what, 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 what maybe Kutsia is doing with it or something yeah. like that? Yeah, yeah, because of course we know she has very strong beliefs, which I, you know, at the end of the day don't agree with, but it's not true that she doesn't believe anything. Yeah, but throughout, really I mean, this is one of the difficulties is that it seems like she'll really try and promote something, like a certain idea, and then we'll kind of change her mind, right? Well, she'll talk about the imaginative powers of literature and then says, yeah, poetry is not going to do anything about closing the slaughterhouses. It doesn't have an effect at all. And so it really does seem like one of the maybe things that occurs in the novel is a certain sense of what the possibilities of novel writing leaves us with when you start to be in the grips of the kind of picture that she is, where it starts from saying, yeah, reason and literature. I'm now, I'm now pitching it to you, so maybe it's more and more appealing. Reason and whatever literature are should be totally split apart. And that slowly dissolves into not having any beliefs and not even being able to write about yourself, having no self-knowledge really at all. Um, I mean, she seems to become her writerly identity but in totally becoming her writerly identity has nothing to say about anything. Mm -hmm. Right. Not even about herself. Right. In any way. And the novel concludes with not being able to say anything about herself, but with a riff or a fictionalized version of something that was already a fiction, the letter to Shonda's. Mm -hmm. And so it seems like her ability to imaginatively, imaginatively enter into Molly Bloom into Shondos into all of these animals has totally left absent any person for her to be in relating to the people in her life. It's yeah. just totally evaporated. Yeah. In a sense, she just is her role as the writer, which leaves kind of no self for her to be for the actual people in her life. Right. A secretary of the invisible. I just yeah. wait for the voices to speak. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So in the end, it's more about the dangers of writing than the dangers of reading. Right. And I think that's interesting. And I think that this is something that Chris Beha gets into a little bit in mm -hmm. um, in his most recent novel, The Index of Self-Destructive Acts. Did you read that? Didn't you just interview him? Uh, he's just... been on the podcast, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, I that. No, I haven't read it yet, though. Yeah, you should read it. Everyone should read it. It's a great, okay. it's a great novel, in my opinion. But... Yeah, one of the main characters is a writer yeah. who is, yeah, caught in this same dilemma that insofar as you're contemplating, you're not acting in the world. And insofar as you're in the world, you're not contemplating. Right. And of course, philosophers have thought a lot about that as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, this is again, um, one of the, the, the paradoxes of the novel, right, is that it's a novel that seems to both both approve of and condemn reading and approve of and condemn writing. Um, yeah. Both in the sense that it says these negative things about reading and writing in a very mor morally serious way. Mm -hmm. Yet it is a novel that Coetzea wrote and we are the ones reading it. Yeah. And I think yeah. he does kind of want us to live in the paradox and the tension. It's not just supposed to be like, here's a cute trick. It is supposed to, I think for him, show us something more, more difficult. Well, I think we do live in a paradox and in a tension. I just happen to think that Christianity has the best line on explaining what that is. But, but yeah, um, right. 
but um but I won't I I won't start doing catechesis. But I I mean yeah, how to end this. Um maybe we should just talk very briefly about a book that I did read, The Mulhall. Oh, wonderful. The yeah. Wounded Animal. Obviously, we can only like barely scratch the surface, but I think Mulhall's line is that, well, if I understand it, which is a big if, so please correct me if if it's wrong, but he thinks that Coetzee is kind of putting philosophy to the test more than more than fiction. What do you what do you think? So I don't what do you know. Take away right from the Mulhall book. So the maybe. the Mulhall book is really tricky. I was talking to a friend about this this summer because he. He asked on Twitter, like, what are some of the strangest or most, you know, unusual books of philosophy you've read? And I said The Wounded Animal. And one of the reasons that it's confusing is it kind of dovetails. It's purportedly about Coetzee, and the opening is about Coetzee, and then immediately it turns into this debate over a book review between Honora O'Neill and Cora Diamond. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right? Very, very quickly. It has all these parts about Heidegger and being in time throughout. It is this just strange, strange mix Mm -hmm. of literary criticism and philosophy. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that he's trying to point to is, so like we were talking about, there's the Tanner lectures, and then there were the responses to it. Mm -hmm. And then there were like responses to the responses. Mm -hmm. And that was, right, so we've got Costello, then the Peter Singer response, and then Cora Diamond and Stanley Cavell, John McDowell, all responded to Singer's response, basically. Oh, oh John McDowell? Yeah, yeah. Well, so McDowell... How have I not read this? Yeah, it's, it's this <laughs> little book. My it's, advisor. Called, it's called Philosophy and Animal Life. So the way it. that it basically works is um, Diamond basically talks about Singer. Cavell talks about Diamond and Singer, and then McDowell mostly talks about Cavell. So there are all of these kind of strange responses happening. Well, we'll have to... Sam, you'll have to come back on for, like, a patrons-only episode, and we can talk about the responses to the responses. Yeah, we can actually get into the, the philosophy yeah. of literature stuff. But, yeah, I mean, what, 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 what's your main takeaway from the Mulhall? I think a lot of it is trying to point out that there's a false demarcation that occurs between think kind of actually like what you were talking about to think of um, reason and literary imagination as totally distinct faculties where one thing you might think is, look, if I'm telling you a story, I'm fundamentally telling you something that's non-rational. And so I might persuade you to believing something. Wait, wait, what? Wait, say that again. What? So if I'm telling you a story, uh-huh. this is the, this is the bad picture. If I'm oh, telling okay. you a story, yeah, yeah, yeah. no, 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 no. <laughs> no, 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 no. This is what this is what Mohal and what I myself are attacking. So this is one reason oh, I, I want to talk. Okay, yeah, yes. yeah. I got so, so worried. So, yeah, no, 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 no. no. I, I, I'm I'm so sorry to everyone who is clearly going to be upset by this as well. <laughs> no, okay. So the singer understanding, and this is what Nora O'Neill thinks, is look, we've got reason on one hand, and we've got the imagination and literature on the other. They're fundamentally distinct, right? There's a chasm that can't be washed. So if you're offering a story, that's nice. You might persuade something, someone to believe something that's true, uh, but it's fundamentally non-rational. Yeah, what you it's ultimately so need, it's so you wrong. ultimately need arguments. And I think what 
Mohol is really trying to do is say this kind of sharp demarcation is in part what Coetzee actually wants to question mm-hmm. in some ways. And he wants to rely on other writers, particularly Cora Diamond, to show why that's the case, to try and show a sense in which literature is a, uh, or literary imagination is a fundamentally rational capacity. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that ends up being one of the big themes. It is a different rational capacity from argument, Mm -hmm. from deducing premises to a conclusion. And that if you think that that's what literature is, the business is you know, should be in the business of you're you're kind of fundamentally confused, but it still shows us the truth and in a rational way. Yeah. Yeah. And what he's trying to do is, yeah, I think carve out a space for literature very clearly in which that's what is going on, even in the midst of difficult modernist texts. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is kind of, I'm not sure if we have the same view in the end, but I mean, I certainly agree with all of that. Yeah. I mean, my own view is, or at least part of my own view, this doesn't exhaust how I think about literature and philosophy, but part of it for me is that I think that the imagination plays such an important role in practical deliberation. Yeah. yeah. And which is something that Peter Singer has almost nothing to say about because he has the right. most crude, ridiculous account of practical Sorry, I'm, yeah. Uh, but that's my assessment of it. That is not at all true to actual human life, right? So mm-hmm. he has he has no room for anything like practical wisdom, and and no room for the actual complexity and depth of human life and human psychology. And I think that's pretty clear from reading his works. Yeah, and. You know, this is why, to me, reading literatures is actually pretty essential for doing moral philosophy, is to see the connection, right, between imagination and right practical reasoning, and also moral perception, right? Yeah, yeah. That in, in, in the practical life, we're operating on the level of perception. Now, there's a whole lot of general... There's a whole lot of generality behind that perception. So it's not, in fact, the same kind of perception as you find in an animal. Yeah, yeah. It is a it is an intellectual perception. But that's This is your finest through McDowell coming out. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I mean, it just um it's it's so critical to to moral philosophy in particular to never lose contract. To never lose contact with the particular. Yeah. Yes. And that's why it's so funny to me. It's so striking to me. So funny to me that this novel, the main character is so oddly abstracted. Like all the time. Yes. So it's interesting. But yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely, I mean, look, uh, we have to wrap it up. Yes. Yeah, sorry. So like final thoughts. So my final thoughts, I'll I'll let you have the last word. But my final thoughts are, look, it's actually like a pleasure to read this novel, even though like I kind of feel sorry for the person next to me on the plane because like sometimes I literally was like <laughs> just audibly What's going on? Like, yeah, gasping yeah. like, what are you saying, lady? I enjoyed reading the novel very much. Um, and then I enjoyed going back and reading the Tanner lecture. 
I just don't know. I, I just don't know what to make of it. I mean, it's incredibly thought provoking, but I still don't know if like, I think it's a great novel. I don't know. What are your I final am, thoughts? I am basically in the exact same place, but I feel like I've maybe made some progress at talking to you about it. So again, <laughs> one of the reasons that I wanted to talk about it, I wanted to talk to you about it for two reasons. One was because of all of the things that come up about philosophy and literature afterwards. I think that's so, I mean, both internal and external to the novel. The other part is I just find it so puzzling and I don't know what to make of it. And so I keep returning to it for that reason. It's not like a puzzling in a re totally revolted sense, mm -hmm. but that I just keep trying to work out what is going on. And also, I mean, I know you, you kind of, one of your big lines is the relationship between literature and truth. One line for me is always the relationship between literature and self-knowledge. Yeah, it's the and same, so, same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and so for me, I feel like in examining Elizabeth Costello or thinking about her has allowed me to see ways in which I'm insensitive in my own life, even when it deals with like high horse values that I hold intellectually. Mm -hmm. um, and so reading it, especially this most recent time, was almost, I don't know, realizing similar ways where I might get on, you know, talking to my friends philosophically and say sympathy is a really important value and then be like so unsympathetic to my parents, right. despite the fact that I have these conversations two days apart. And so I think in giving kind of a picture of the intellectual life or a certain kind of intellectual life in which the family dynamics and friendships are a part of it, it embeds those arguments in a way that has at least been helpful for me and maybe seeing my own insensitivities yeah. The way that Stella might, in fact, be blind to those things in herself. Yeah. Yeah. Did you ever read, um, I, so I just discovered this actually this morning. Coetzee had a book that he did with a psycho, um, a psychoanalyst called Aaron yeah, yeah. Hertz called The Good Story, Exchanges on Truth, Fiction, and Psychotherapy. Have you read that? Yeah. I've read parts of it. I've read about the first hundred pages. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I read the first five chapters this morning pretty quickly and one thing that came across is that he does actually seem fairly committed to the idea that art should be truth revealing in some sense yeah yeah i don't it, you know it's not it's it, it's weird because it's like a he's just interviewing <laughs> a right psycho, right uh psychoanalyst am i saying that correctly yeah, yes yeah yeah so 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 it's not like he's writing a treatise on this or something but yeah he's he seems to he, he seems to be somewhat committed to that and and so yeah to the extent to which this is like a postmodern thing I don't think it can be all the way down because he's writing about truth right so. and that was kind of the point I was trying to make about morality as well that it's not just it's a sham at the end of the day you know, um, you mm -hmm. peeled off all the layers of the, right. the onion and there was nothing underneath. Right. It seems like there is something very deep going on. It's right. just hard to know what the clean propositional moral takeaway is supposed to be or the clean propositional truth is supposed to be. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe maybe he thinks it's good to just realize that it's a bit messy. I don't know. Right, right. Yeah, or a bit paradoxical, which, which to be fair, I mean, I I think that it is, and 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 I think too many philosophers pretend that it's not. So, 
anyway, but we we're gonna we're gonna have to go. I hope you'll come yeah. back on for some kind of patrons only thing, and we can uh, talk about John and Cavell and and all these other people. But thank you so much, Sam, for coming on. It was really fun. That would be great. Thanks so much, Jen. I had a blast. You've been listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a philosophy, theology, and literature podcast that is generously underwritten by the Institute for Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America and produced by Catholics for Hire, a group of young Catholic digital content freelancers. Special thanks, as always, goes to Will Dethridge, Bea Quasi, and Joe Coleman for their work in editing and producing this podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider supporting us by giving us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron at patreon.com slash eudaimoniapod. Patrons enjoy many benefits like tote bags and coffee mugs with exclusive artwork and also free digital subscriptions to either The Lamp or The Point magazines. For our next episode, I will be joined by Justin E.H. Smith to talk about Edgar Allan Poe. Until then, friends, be well and keep reading.